Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 509 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how you can succeed as an author or writer. Well, what have you been up to this week? Last episode, I mentioned that I was on the island of Kona in Hawaii, and it's only a few days later, so I'm still here. Regular listeners will know that I'm here at a conference and I'm running some of the sessions. I was sharing something with the participants at the conference yesterday, and I thought I'd share it with you here too, in case you find it useful. It's something that I've done a lot of research into, and it's, well, it's kind of like a mantra that I live by. Most of the time anyway, because, you know, when you're creative, sometimes things can seem impossible or at the very least improbable, like, you know, getting a book published or speaking at a huge festival to hundreds or thousands of people or winning an award or approaching a media outlet to interview you about your book. I mean, the list is endless, right? It does. You don't even have to be a writer. You could be an artist. You could be a photographer, whatever. We can often be blocked by our fears and we can hear things in our head like, oh, what if I'm not good enough? Or what if I find out for sure because someone tells me I'm not good enough? What will people think if I put myself out there like this? Um, I have no idea where to start to even achieve that goal. Again, the list is endless. The reality is that fears are going to come up all the time because that's just life but you can choose to let them stop you or hinder you, or you can choose to, and this is my mantra, feel the fear and do it anyway. After all, when you think about it, the choice is kind of easy. You either let the fear stop you, and then, well, it just stops you, and that's the end of the story, or you can wait to see if the fear goes away. But honestly, most of the time it does not go away, and you could be waiting forever, so that's not very useful either. Or... You can acknowledge that the fear is there because it's there, it exists, but you just still move forward. I think that that option really makes the most sense. So next time you're faced with a block or an obstacle because you're scared of taking the next step, take a deep breath, acknowledge that you feel scared, acknowledge that fear and understand that it exists and it's not going away anytime soon but move forward anyway. Take that first little step, whatever that step might be. So that's kind of my mantra in a nutshell, and I hope you find it useful, but I just thought I would share it with you because I was sharing it at this conference recently, and it's something that has worked really well for me and that I really believe in. Um, Yeah, feel free to ping me in the Facebook group if you want to talk about it further, but yeah, I just wanted to share share that with you. But for now, let's just move on to talk about writing prompts. It's something I've been thinking about lately. Writing prompts are a great way to get your creative juices flowing. And you can find, I mean, you can find loads of them online, either pictures or phrases or scenarios or just simple words to get you started. But for a super simple writing prompt, try this. Take a random book off your shelf. It works best if you choose a book you haven't read before and if you don't know what it what it's about and open it up to a random page and read the very last line on the page. 
Now take that line and use it as your inspiration to start something new. So I happen to have this on me. So I happen to open up The Music Shop by Rachel Joyce, which I haven't read yet. And the line I've landed on is, Henry remained hovering at the doorway, useless and smiling in his socks. (laughs) Okay, so I mean, that could be the beginning of a great story. Who is Henry? Why is he hovering in the doorway? And is he only wearing socks? Obviously, you don't want to use the sentence verbatim because if you end up turning it into a real story and submitting it, you know, somewhere, it will be noticed as plagiarism and you don't do that. So just use it as a prompt, as a way to kickstart your writing for the day, you know, and then probably get rid of that sentence so that there's no chance that you'll plagiarize. And of course, you can find prompts like this everywhere on an ad on the side of a bus or in a TV show or an interview or a newspaper headline. I mean, so many novels are inspired by newspaper headlines, right? Find a line, any line that speaks to you and use it as your next creative prompt. And of course, we have our world famous Furious Fiction competition, which encourages you to use a prompt to write your very own 500 word story in just 55 hours. And the winning story wins $500. The next competition opens on Friday, the 4th of November. So make sure you sign up to the alert so that you know the minute it opens and you have all of the clues and, well, not the clues, but all of the um, criteria that you need to include in your submission. You can find out more at furiousfiction.com.au. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this episode. Oliver Pomervan loves to make people laugh, whether it's on the page writing humour for kids or on stage as a stand-up comedian. He's also been a primary school teacher and has performed at various comedy festivals and writers' festivals around Australia and Asia. He has written 11 books, including Brain Freeze, which is a collection of short stories, Natural Born Loser, and Tyrific. His latest book is What About Tao? Thanks so much for joining us today, Oliver. Absolute pleasure, Val. Great to be back. Yeah, well, we first had you on the podcast way back in episode 144, but a lot has happened since to you. You've released so many more books. Uh, There's so much to catch up on. And, of course, there are some new listeners who haven't heard your story yet. So, But before we get into all of that, your latest book is What About Tao? Can you tell us what it is about? Sure. So What About Tao is about a city kid named Tao uh, Chung, who is from the city, and basically his parents have decided to go for a bit of a tree change after lockdown and the pandemic. So they decided to move to a very small town called Magala, and Tao is initially excited about being a you kid because he feels like he gets a second chance to start afresh after being, you know, kind of fading in the background in his city school. However, it turns to in a little bit of anxiety when he realizes he's the only Asian kid in the whole town, let alone the school. Um, thrown in that into the mix is a brand new arrival named Kader. Now, Kader is actually brand new to Australia. So he's a refugee from uh, Syria and his teacher naturally um, pairs Kader up with Tao and the two form a very special bond. Uh, Kader kind of confides in Tao 
And even though Kadir is a little bit shut off from the rest of the world, it's up to Tao to really bring him out of his shell, as well as learning what it really feels like to belong in a place. So what and, age um, group is this for? Yeah, so um, it's for uh, ages eight and up. Eight and up. Now, you have a very varied career. Apart from being a children's author, a very successful children's author, you're also a stand-up comedian, you've been a primary school teacher, you've done a bunch of things and you've worn many hats. When did you want to write? So I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid. So, you know, I grew up on a diet of like, you know, Paul Jennings, uh, Roald Dahl, most classroom books. So I knew I wanted to write funny stories and that carried on to high school and I did university degree on writing. And then in the last year of my writing degree, they encouraged us to do a diploma of education to teach English in high school. And I figured, well, <laughs> those high school kids are very torn and uh, I don't want to get you know hurt or anything like that. So I decided to go <laughs> primary school because I can tower over them. Um, so I figured, okay, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, you know, nine to three job, lots of school holidays. How hard could it be? And wow, we, it is a very, very, in, well, it's a very emotional kind of job, but it's at the same time, it's so rewarding. And that's when I realized, hang on a sec, maybe I should write for kids because I'm still a big kid myself. I love video games, I love anime, I love cartoons. And I said, okay, well, why don't I start writing stories from a kid's perspective? And by that stage, I had so many ideas already for kids' books, thanks to the kids in my class. And um, yeah, from there, I have never looked back. So middle grade is a very specific age group because kids is, there's also picture books. There's also, you know, younger, you know, books for chapter, chapter books and that sort of thing. Why did you choose middle grade? So I like to call it the most gladsome kind of age. So, you know, the kids are independent. Um, you don't have to baby them. You can have proper conversations. And I guess I echo back to my days when I used to teach year five and six, like I could really talk to them as really little adults, but at the same time, they still got a sense of wonder. They're still quite innocent. Um, you know, the effects of growing up hasn't really sort of impacted yet. And so they're kind of like, you know, on one hand, they're, you know, they're, they're too big for the world in a sense, because, you know, they're sort of reaching the upper ends of primary school. But at the same time, they still got this little childish, uh, childish kind of sense of um, curiosity and uh, smallest and they're, they're still trying to find themselves as well so i love this age because my characters in the books can be quite capable of so many things but they are also not knowing about a lot of other things as well so you combine the two together and you can come up with some really captivating stories so what about tau uh what number book is this how many books have you written so this is uh, book number 11 now. So, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. What an achievement. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a plan? Like if you, this is your 11th book. So do you have some kind of um, yearly plan where you decide, okay, every, I don't know, certain amount of time you need to be writing one book because you need to, because you're a very, very popular author in terms of, school visits and, and and talks and that sort of thing. So how do you have a plan for your year? Yeah, so I kind of see myself as a touring author. So I like to bring out books just so I have an excuse to go touring again and visit <laughs> schools and do festivals. Um, so I kind of treat myself like a music artist. So, you know, I kind of like um, bring out the books basically in a yearly run. That's ideal for me. Like to have a book out once a year would be uh, pretty cool. And then the cycle of promoting and then – doing my school visits will take up 
I would say maybe six, seven months of the year. So before COVID, I was actually traveling and doing festivals and school visits up until eight months of the year, which is uh, probably the most busiest time I've ever been as an author before um, the pandemic. And um, so I guess for me in the short term, it's just that cycle of you know bringing a book out, promoting it, and then using that wave to continue to do school visits, which I absolutely love because I'm still an educator at heart. I love doing workshops. I love engaging with kids and getting them to be confident when it comes to writing stories, especially uh, funny stories. Um, in the medium term, I look to my heroes such as Morris Gladstone, Annie Griffiths, Paul Jennings. They've been writing books now for over 40 years. Mm. And so I can't see myself doing anything else. Like, you know, I want to be a writer for life. And it's even trickier being a kid's author in terms of longevity because, you know, as you get older, that gap, that disconnect between adults and kids gets larger and larger. And, you know, in the back of my head, I often wonder, well, you know, will the kids look at me and think, oh, this guy's too old to be hip or be cool? Or will I look at kids and go, oh, I don't know what they're really into anymore? And I only have to look to people like Morris Gleitzman, you know, Andy Griffiths as well, to know that you can keep reinventing yourself and keep still be relevant to kids as well. So um, I guess for me in the long term, I would love to keep writing. You know, I've just hit my second decade and I'm really thankful and grateful to be here still and even to come back on this podcast as well, you know, because it's little things like this that make me realize that, you know, I've still got a long way to go, but I'm, I'm still enjoying every step of the journey. So, Oh, hmm. I have no doubt we'll be reading you for decades to come and the oh, kids will be you. reading yeah. <laughs> you for decades to come. Fantastic stories. So tell me where stand-up comedian work fit <laughs> into, you know, uh, the journey of your life. When did it start? Why did it start? And... Do, what do what do you get out of it? <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? It all started off with Jerry Seinfeld. So I was a massive Seinfeld fan. I could quote, you know, a lot of quotes and from the characters and episodes and all that thing in, back in high school. And I naturally thought that, you know, to uh, to make it as, you know, a TV personality or an author even, you had to do stand-up comedy first. So that's what I did. I, I was always <laughs> a bit of class clown anyway. I love performing. Um, and so it was a natural progression. So fresh out of high school, uh, first year uni, I went to the comedy store in Sydney, did my first five minutes, and I absolutely bombed, as in like, no one laughed. And it was so like humiliating, um, so gut-wrenching. And I said, wow, I want to do some more. <laughs> so uh, there's nothing greater than making random people laugh. So I had a really good run of doing stand-up comedy, um, and the thing about comedy, right, is that you can go in and out of the scene um, depending on, on your circumstances and, and things happening in your life as well. So I'd be really thankful that um, I can still stay in touch with stand-up comedy. Uh, but in the greater scheme of things, if I had to choose between writing and comedy, I would choose writing in a heartbeat because um, at the heart of it, you know, I, I'm a writer. And as much as I love performing, I can still do it in front of kids as part of my school visits. Um, so... Stand-up comedy is a nighttime job, and when I'm busy visiting schools during the daytime, I can't, you know, neglect my family at home and do comedy as well. So I had to give sort of comedy um, a little bit of a, a flick, I guess, and put on the back burner. So, you know, for the last couple of years now, I maybe do maybe 10 gigs a year. I've been very lucky that I still know a couple of um, old comedy organizers and promoters that you know still know me from back in the day and so i can still do comedy then but and i still love it you know i still love making adults laugh but you know um at the end of the day i find that those comedy skills that i have 
really helped me be a teacher in the sense of like teaching is a performance you know we perform in front of our, our students and also just being a writer as well because you know you have to really um, know your punchlines know what really works and how to be snappy and I, I learned mm-hmm. all of that through, through through performing so yeah I find it fascinating that you say that you bombed and that you couldn't wait to do more. I mean, most people would bomb and just (laughs) go, oh, my goodness, I'm no good at this. What motivated you to continue? I think knowing that other people bombed as well. Like, you know, you only have to look back at, you know, no matter what job you want to do, whether it's a writer, YouTuber, comedian, actor, you know that every famous person you can think of initially did tank and it took them a long time to actually find themselves, find their voice and hit their groove. And, you know, when it comes to comedy, stage time is so important. They say that you've got to do like a hundred, sorry, they say you've got to do a hundred crappy gigs before you actually find who you really are on stage. And that is so true because it's those first hundred gigs that you do that you get to experiment with your voice, your expression, your persona. And you can even apply it to writing as well. You know, you think of all the drafts you write, you're just finding your voice. I think a lot of writers get caught up in this whole thing of like, it has to be perfect straight away. Oh, I've got a couple of knockbacks. And yes, they do hurt. But honestly, when you're still drafting and you're still like trying to find yourself and trying to find your style, I reckon just experiment. Don't be afraid to fail. It's It's normal to fail forward, I say. So it's a bit of a cliche, but yeah. Um, so I think for me, I kind of knew in in advance that I was going to bomb, but I didn't know how it was going to feel though, because it, I mean, it, it really does, like, it keeps you up at night and you think like, oh man, like, you know, it's just so bad. But, you know, I, I eventually got better and I've seen other people do it as well, which gave me the confidence to just go back as well. So, yeah. So let's talk about your writing process and let's take this book, What About Tao, as an example. How did you get the idea? Where where did you know? And when once you get the idea, what happens after that? Do you just start writing, or do you plot it out? Do you have a note, special notebook that you um, scribble ideas on? Tell us about from conception to you know basically um, your process, even of writing your first draft, whether you do it in a particular spot <laughs> every yeah. day or or what? Yeah, take a story. Yeah, so look, What About Tao is a love letter to all the country schools I've visited over the last 10 years. I've been to, I say yes to everything. So, you know, like have 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 book, will travel. So, <laughs> you know, I've been to places like uh, Manila in regional New South Wales, Lightning Ridge, West Wylong, uh, Bundaberg, uh, Mildura. Like I've been everywhere i've been everywhere i don't know i better not do that before. uh but yeah yeah i honestly have been and the response i get at country schools have always been fantastic you know the kids are so warm the adults there the the, the town folks have always been so accommodating and i i often you know every now and then i would be the only asian person in that small town that i would see for for a couple of days and occasionally i will see like a like an asian kid in one of these schools, you know, and these schools really do have just 23 kids in, in from K to 6. And I often wanted to make my head, I wonder how they feel. Like, you know, do they feel different? Do they feel like they fit in? And so that seed of a story has always been in my head for a while. And the way that I kind of work out my stories is the first third of it actually happens in my head. Like, you know, it happens in my head. It's kind of like um, a kettle boiling water. 
And so it just boils it, you know, in, um, I like to call it like, you know, chewing gum. You know, I call my fans chewing gum gums because imagination is something that you chew on for a bit. So I just chew on this idea. I just observe things, take down notes, maybe in my notebook. And then when, when I'm ready to blow the bubble out, that's when it starts to actually become a story. So then from there, I pitch it to my publisher um, at Penguin. I give them a two-page synopsis. Um, they tend to give me the green light from there or, you know, yay or nay. And once but they with give me that, green... with that synopsis, sorry to interrupt, but with yeah. that synopsis, is it the full story that you give to your publisher? It's probably like 75%. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes I have the ending already and it's down pat. Other times I just give them a bit of a blurb in the sense of like, will he ever fit in this new town? Like, what will he think of Kadir? Will Kadir ever be, you know, able to, like, you know, um, make friends here in Magala? So something like that, perhaps, if if I haven't got the right idea. And for What About Tao, it kind of did feel like that. Like, this was probably a very difficult book for me to write compared to the others because I really did struggle with finding the right tone for this book. You see, the original tone for this book was going to be, um, you know, Asian kid in a small town, Asian is kind of normal now, like, you know, it's been normalized enough well, to an extent. And I figured, like, you know, he loves to be different, but everyone else in town sees him as a normal kid. So that's how I figured it would be. However, Kadir's voice, you know, when Kadir came into the mix and the original pitch was going to be Tao was going to, like, be jealous of Kadir because he's more brand newer than Tao. And, they were, and he was going to try to make Kadir fit in so uh, Tao could be the new kid again. But Kadir's voice, you know, he's resentful, he's hardened, he's he's grit. Like, you know, that sort of just came out through every single draft, every single refinement that I did, and I just couldn't ignore his voice any longer. So I told Penguin, you know what, this is going to be a different kind of story. So I mm-hmm. had another, an extra eight months, and, you know, if you're going to have an extra eight months, why not do it during lockdown? So it wasn't too bad for me in that sense. Um, so yeah, it, it, I get, I got the extra time to, to really refine and work on Kadir's backstory. I was very lucky to actually talk to a couple of refugees from Syria, from my church to really make it a very uh, genuine story. And I wanted to handle it with, with delicate care as well. And the end result is just mind blowing. Like even I was just surprised at myself. Like this is a very different kind of story to my more wackier out there kind of humor stories, but the humor is still there, but there's a lot of heart to it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, taking a step back from that, like, so after the two page synopsis, um, I start my first draft and my first draft, I call it just, it's just, um, laying down the dirt, basically. It just, Laying the dirt there, you got the foundation, um, and then I start to mold it. The magic for me happens in the f- in second and third draft. I just, you know, vomit the, the the raw draft out, and then with every single draft from there, I start to sculpt it. I start to really get a feel for the characters, and then you know, I just keep doing that, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, until I get to the stage where I feel like it's ready enough to to give to my editor, and that usually takes about six months. It's even six a bit months hard. of editing. Oh, six months of, of just doing that, um, of the drafting. Of, of the redrafting, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, and the reason for that is because I'm usually traveling as well. So, you know, like I'm I'm doing it like an, an hour in the hotel, on the plane, in, at airports, in between school sessions perhaps, or like, you know, if I've got like a half an hour. Um, I'm very lucky that I can just, you know, click my fingers and get trained to the zone when I'm at my laptop just typing away. And um, yes, yeah, so six months is usually what um, what I give myself, and then 
Um, I'm very lucky that Penguin give me a deadline. I need deadlines. Like um, I find that I'm a deadline dragon still in terms of like, you know, um, I tend to thrive and my creativity tends to thrive as well, knowing that I need to produce something very soon. So I trust the process in that sense. Um, and yeah, so that happens for six months. And then my editor and I, we, we go back and forth trying to like, you know, make it better. And yeah, you know, when from the rough draft that I give to my editor to the finished product, there is still at least perhaps 30% that is chopped away and then regrafted some newer scenes, some more clarification. Um, maybe some characters get taken out. Maybe some characters get a better backstory or an extra layer perhaps as well. So, yeah. Wow. So you're saying that at least 30% either gets <clears throat> deleted, changed or added mm. um, uh, after you sent it into the publisher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And I, yeah, I guess for me it's because, um, you know, my my editor, Heather, like she's wonderful. I've been very lucky to have the same editor for the, the last, you know, uh, 11 years basically since the start. And, you know, her questions that she gives me are very thought-provoking. And I just, I look at them, I agree with with 99.9% of what she says. And I feel like I need to go back and 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 refine it in a way that, like, I'm happy to, to kill off some funny scenes or funny jokes in order to tell the heart of the story. So, yeah. Now, you obviously have a background in where humour is, is a big part of it. You said you mm. were the class clown yeah. and there's a lot of humour in your books. Is that something that you write into the story naturally or do you sometimes go back and because you said sometimes Heather says you're going to take that funny bit out or whatever, but do mm. you sometimes go back and think that needs to be funnier and then have to think of a way to to write it in a way that's funnier yeah sometimes like i find that like um naturally my characters have always had a different slant on on life already so i think through their unique personality the humor comes out naturally as it is so you know it's how uh for example being a little bit apprehensive like you know he will make jokes about the small town and the misunderstandings that's where the humor comes into it as well um but yeah, there are some scenes where like I look back and I go, I can make this snappier. I can take away this line. Or this punchline's a little bit soft. Let me add something a bit more harder. Um, so I, I can definitely do that for sure. And so it really depends on the scene. Um, and you know, with, with humor, you can you can switch it on and off like like a light sometimes. Like um, even the most serious story, um, like a YA thriller, for example, can still have humor because you can't just insert it during the editing process and for the reader it's the signal for them to ah or have a laugh and then move on to the next kind of scene so mm. yes yeah, so it does work both ways um but yeah i find that my voice has already got that sort of natural humor to it but sometimes it needs that extra clarification or yeah sometimes it just needs a bit more slapstick or maybe a little more uh fun with words here or uh, funnier dialogue as well so yeah so you said that you always wanted to write from when you were very young, when you were reading those books mm. um, by the, those middle grade authors or children's authors. You've also said that you, as a writer, you think it's important to have representation and diversity in your stories. Mm. When you first started writing, though, your first book, that is, yep. your first novel, 
How much at the forefront was the issue of diversity or were you just wanting to be a writer, get published and, and you know, tell a story? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I really did make a point of it because, um, you know, I always tell kids I wish I was able to read books that had myself on the cover. And, um, you know, by that I mean I wish I had books that had Asian strains as the main character. And um, looking back when I was pitching Tyrific, the only two I could think of were uh, books written by Ruth Clark. So Nips 11, which had an Asian uh, character on the front cover playing cricket, and also a book called Noodle Pie, which Ruth Stark also published as well. That was like 20, um, 2008, I think. And so I knew by then there was there was hardly anything. And, and yes, you know, it, it does help that sometimes not having anything there can help you as well, but it can also put you at a disadvantage as well because, you know, the publishers are also taking a risk as well. Um, I actually had someone say to me, oh, no one wants to hear an Asian Australian story. It's a bit like, Ugh, why, why, why would you hear that? For? When you say someone, do you mean a publisher or do you oh, mean no, no. a random it, person it, it on the street? It was actually like someone, <laughs> someone at a party. I should clarify that actually. because, uh, <laughs> uh, but And, you know, like I said, oh, you know, like, you know, like why, why would you want to hear that for? But you know what? I was very lucky, and this could be good fortune, was that at the time, one of my short stories, Hot and Spicy, got included in Growing Up Asian in Australia. And it was edited by Alice Pong, uh, published by Black Ink. And that was my first break, massive first break. I remember going to the festival, meeting Alice, meeting Benjamin Law, and just being surrounded by all these Asian Australians from all different walks of life, all different, um, you know, like careers and jobs, all having that growing up story within them. And that gave me like the launch pad that I needed to really refine Tyrific and, and make it the story that it is today. And, you know, I think I always make a point of having all my characters be Asian Australian and people have asked me in the past, why you do that for? And I say, because I can, <laughs> honestly, because I can, like there's just, and you know, the, even though the scene has improved a lot and we are taking like great steps forward in terms of diversity, especially with, with children's books, like, you know, I'm so proud to see diversity all different walks of life, all different like um, you know angles, and which is something that I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of. But I will still continue, um, you know, talking about Asian Australians in in a way because I know that readers can read that and take it both ways. You know, if they're not Asian Australian, they can still relate to other things. But nothing gives me a greater kick than having going to a school, seeing an Asian Australian in the audience, and go, "I just want to be just like you." You know, or I, I never thought I could be a writer, but then I read your books or, you know, Gabrielle Rang's books or Alice Pung books. And I'm like, yeah, this is so cool. So, yeah. A lot of people would say, oh, well, that ma it makes perfect sense because Oliver is Asian Australian and it makes perfect sense for his main character, for his characters or some of his characters to be Asian Australian. Um, for people who are uh, emerging and aspiring and established authors who are not Asian Australian, how important do you think it is for them to ensure that they have a diverse range of characters in their book? You know, it really comes down to, like, um, for the author or for the writer to make conscious decisions at the very start in terms of, like, what kind of story are they trying to say? Like, there's nothing worse than having diversity for the sake of diversity. So I think you've got to strip it back and, and, and you know, what is the main character trying to say or what is the author trying to say? Um, I find that, like, you know, 
uh, for example, what I can think of, uh, Nana Moore um, had a book, uh, the, the the Power of Positive Pranking, and they had a um, a lead character who, who who was Asian, and you know that fit in, in quite well because she had a backstory between her and her grandfather. It was a really nice relationship being formed there, and that felt like a natural fit in the story. So I find that it really comes down to the main character first, and then from there you could you know if you wanted to you could have different people from different backgrounds. But it really depends on what kind of story you're trying to say. One of the best things about now with, with modern multiculturalism in, in Australia is that it's we've almost reached a point now, and I see this in in schools all the time. Man, like kids don't even blink twice anymore about where they come, where people come from. They just go, "Oh yeah, he likes basketball," you know, "he likes Pokemon." The, the, the last thing they they represent, the last thing they they do is they um call them by their nationality or anything like that anymore, which is really cool. So I find that like um sometimes not making a point of it is the point sometimes mm. like it's just like it's it's just natural now so um i find that the the best stories that represent diversity are the ones that you know they just have it there and they don't make a big point of it um sometimes they do depending on the story but other times it's just there because that's just what they see out in the playground schools and and kids really resonate with that like the last thing you want is kids to go through a lesson of, of sorts and, and all that kind of thing so yeah. I agree, actually. That is a very good point. And I think that it's become more apparent in the last maybe two years with books and with television, because previously, if you had an Asian Australian character on television or in books, they would there would be some scene about them eating rice or something. And it's like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Firstly, it's not necessarily yeah. accurate. And it's, <laughs> what's the freaking point? It's, they just yeah. happen to be Asian Australian. <laughs> exactly. I always laugh that's at right. those and, Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. Like, And I'm, I'm really thankful now that, especially in TV, like on screen, like it's just so much um, vibrance now. And I feel like, um, the storytellers, um, um, you know, these, these, these fresh perspectives that they're bringing to their shows, it's, it really is a breath of fresh air. And I love the fact that it is not a big deal, you know, because mm. people watching it and, and kids reading it, they don't think it's a big deal. They just go, Oh, yeah, where are you from? Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Let, let's move on. Let's, let's continue. So, um, I find that it's, it's really cool, um, that, we're getting to the point now where it's, we could have anyone and, and anyone sort of come into books now. So, yeah. Yes, it's more authentic to real life, mm. isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, I, I grew up in Western Sydney. I grew up in in schools. I, I visit schools that are just you know people from all kinds of backgrounds. So that's the kind of schools I wanted to have in in my stories. So let's talk about when you're doing the first draft. You've already had at least of a third of the book brewing in your head. Mm. Do you then just write, or do you? plot out scenes what do you do um it really depends on the book so um you know books in the past like con nerd i actually did map out each of the chapters what was going to happen in each of the scenes uh these days now i just i just write it out i just write it out i write um a whole lot of scenes that eventually will get me to um the character's end goal or like i might have like an end scene in mind so for example i'm working on sneakerheads my my next book and I know at the very end that it's going to end at a sneaker convention. It's going to be a big event. You know, lots of sneaker lovers are going to be there. I just need to work my way to that event. Um, and so what I do is I, I make sure that I write all the scenes that I feel like I want to write. And then it's only in the second draft where I go back and go, hang on a sec. 
I think this scene might work better at the front, or I think oh, I think that interaction might work better um, at the back end of this chapter, or in another chapter, or maybe just doesn't work at all. So I like to kind of do it like like Lego pieces, I guess. So the first draft is really a mishmash of scenes that loosely make sense, but it's only when I look back and there's no greater feeling than knowing that I have thirty three thousand words to play with. You know, knowing that I can, like, you know, like I've I've got something here already, and that gave me this gives me great confidence to actually go, okay, well, I can move this over here, move that over there, and I do this kind of like um haphazardly just on my keyboard, just you know, just kind of pacing like like a crazy person, I guess. Um, and then by the third or fourth draft, it really starts to take shape. Like I really sort of nailed the first three chapters, for example, and then I go, okay, um you know, now let's put it in some sort of order, I guess. And and the beauty of it is, is that like, you know, as a reader um, or even my editor that doesn't know this process, but what my editor sees is, is some, somewhat more polished, but just, you know, for me, it's just all over the place. And I'll slowly just, you know, put it all, all together. Your last book, Brain Freeze, was a series mm. of short stories. Why did you decide to do that? So I wanted a change of pace um, from... Uh, writing chapter novels and um at that time i was editing funny bones and that was a, a book that i did for charity with ken and joe temple uh raising funds for war child and as i was editing this collection of short stories i had been submitting short stories to other anthologies like total crack up for example um but even though i was writing short stories for these anthologies i kept some of the good ones for myself so over the last seven or eight years, I had been collecting all these short stories that I thought, they're just too good to give away. I want to put them all together. And so when the time when the time came um, for Penguin to say, well, what have you got cooking? I said, you know what? I would love to write a short story collection because when I um, do my school visits, I always say, if you want to write, start writing short stories. Short stories can be like, you know, six words to a hundred words. It's just get to the point, get to the good stuff. It's all filler, no, sorry, it's all killer, no filler. And so I, um, you know, grew up on reading Paul Jennings, uh, which is the, who's the master of the short story. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do the same as well. So, um, yeah, I, I really had a lot of fun writing Brain Freeze. I got to delve into um, genres that I, norm- I don't normally um, write about, like fantasy, a little bit of sci-fi as well. And I got to write in third person, which I ne- normally never read to write as well. So. For me, I found it a lot of fun. So, yeah. When you're writing, do you, because you say that you often do the uh, redraft, you're often traveling during Mm. the redrafting stage. Yeah. But when you're in the depths of your first draft, does it work if you're traveling or do you have to be in one place in order to focus and concentrate? I think I've learned out of necessity just to just work as I'm traveling, I think, um, it actually kind of backfired last year with, with lockdown, you know, um, it's always that, that mantra of like, you always end up doing more housework an hour before visitors come, as opposed to having the whole weekend to do household chores, because it's that whole like deadline kind of thing. So last year, you know, I had like months and months on end to, to really refine, um, you know, a book. And I just, I, I, I did work okay but not as productive as i would have been if i was just like having an hour here having an hour there it's funny how the mind works you know like if you give me a long amount of time i end up working slower i end up working like according to how much time i have 
which is kind of funny actually. And so I think I've been conditioned over the last couple of years to really just work on the go, work on the road. And I can really just, you know, snap in and just zone in and get into that running zone in and out, just almost like opening and closing a nap on, on a phone or some of that. So, But is there a minimum amount, amount of time or, or can you just open and close that tap in a 10-minute window? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I could, you know, in, in my first draft phase, I really could end up doing five minutes, 10 minutes, um, half an hour, an hour, like just chipping away at it, just, you know, um, writing half a chapter, writing a couple of words. And, yeah, it just slowly adds up. The work count slowly builds up. I think for me, I kind of tend to – slow a bit down when I'm doing my fourth or fifth draft because by that stage, things are starting to set. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I can start bashing away my keyboard at that stage. I need to actually look at the scene, read the paragraph, and that might take five minutes. So maybe by the fourth or fifth draft, I can't really be as productive in terms of like word count and, and producing words, but I can still reading it. I'm still thinking about the scene. And I might change maybe like two words or add a sentence and that might be my my running time up before I go visit a school or um, catch a plane or something. Yeah. Um, when you're doing your school visits, <laughs> I mean, I can think of nothing more terrifying, to be honest, and I suppose you're used to it because you're a teacher. Mm, um, yeah. But what is your goal when you are doing those school visits generally? I think the first goal for me is entertainment. I think like, um, especially given that it's an incursion or excursion, sometimes when, when kids come to you at festivals, like there's no doubt about it. You have to entertain kids. There's nothing worse than, you know, listen to me. I, I know what's good for you or, or read this book, you know, because I liked it and, you know, all this kind of thing. Like the, the kids see through that. And my goodness, given that we are now living in the screen generation, um, you really have to capture the kid's attention in the first 15 seconds. Otherwise, they will mentally swipe right and then you've lost him. So um, I find that you have to really entertain them first and foremost. Second of all is be authentic as well. Like So I so I, I engage them in a way that is coming from my, where I'm coming from. And authors, we all say the same thing. We all say read lots of books. We all say, you know, um, edit your work and all this kind of stuff, but it's the way we say it that is different. And so I find that it you've got to find your unique angle of presenting that same message and you're halfway there in terms of like, you know, um, your content in terms of like what you're going to say during your presentation or, or, or even during the writing workshop too. So, yeah. What are you working on now? So, yes, yeah, so I'm working on Sneakerheads, uh, which is my next uh, passion project book and I love sneakers. I've got over 170 pairs of sneakers. If you look at my socials, I've just got like sneaker after sneaker coming in. And it's part of my, you know, my, my life, which I absolutely love. And it's a very sweet tale of a boy who, um, you know, wants to be a sneakerhead like his dad. And he's trying to follow in his dad's footsteps, pun intended, to becoming <laughs> one. But however, uh, you know, it's a little bit more... Um, it's it's one thing to like wear cool shoes and be cool, but can you really be cool regardless of what you wear on feet? So it's just one of those delicious stories that I can't wait to to um showcase to the world because uh yeah, it's uh it's been brewing inside me for a while. And um now that I'm you know traveling, I'm starting to notice a couple of kicks, couple of shoes that kids are wearing. I I'm kinda well, I mean look, school visits, 
market research, honestly. Hey, kids, what are you into right now? Hey, you know, that's, that's really cool. So I just kind of observe kids and what they're wearing and stuff. And that kind of adds to the layers that I'm doing for uh, for my draft. So, yeah. Can't wait for it. But in the meantime, What About Tao is out. Um, so thrilled for you. Congratulations. It's a wonderful book. Now, oh, I usually, you. I'm going to put you on the spot because I usually end with what are your top three tips for people who want to be in a position where you are one day, you know, being a published writer, but that's not what I'm going to ask you. I'm going <laughs> yeah, to ask okay. you your top three tips for people who want to write for middle grade because it's very specific, isn't it? Mm, so what would yeah. your top three tips be for pe- for authors who, aspiring authors who want to write for middle grade? Wow. Okay. So that's, that's, that's very tricky because, you know, so like I say, middle grade is very, um, it's, it's very niche in a sense. Um, look, I think first and foremost um, is get the voice right. Um Readers will follow you anywhere if you nail the voice. So um, to do that, you need to either look at your inner child or you need to tap into any kids around you, but find that voice. And once you have it, hold on to it and you can tell whatever story you like. Tip number two is to get to the point. Like like I mentioned before, you have to start really treating like these novels like their Netflix episodes or YouTube clips. So chapters need to be snappy, um, things need to happen in the chapter. I think with middle grade especially, you you have the luxury of writing more, but you also don't have that luxury of like having a lot of fluff as well, like in YA and more thicker novels. At the end of the day, it's very daunting for a kid to hold a thick book in their hand. So get to the point, write less and say more in that sense. Third one is don't be afraid to write things that are taboo or things that are on edge or controversial because give kids a lot of credit. They know a lot of stuff. They have, they have the internet now. So, you know, like don't, don't dance around subjects. I think given over the last couple of years, we've had things like cancer, dementia, anxiety, mental disorders, bullying, like it, it's all come to the forefront now. Kids want to know about that kind of stuff. So don't dance around it. Don't make, a metaphor or energy about it, just talk it out. Be honest with them about these heavy subjects because, you know, that's also another hook for for them to keep on reading as well. So, yeah. Brilliant. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Oliver. Absolute pleasure, Val. Thanks for having me back. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Do you want to write for children? Would you like to create characters and stories that kids will love? Our course in writing children's novels is the perfect way to start your journey towards becoming a children's author. This course focuses on writing for middle grade, that's 8 to 13 year olds. You'll discover how to find your voice, understand the market, take your characters and your readers on epic adventures and create a blueprint for succeeding as a writer. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor, providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children. 
I hope you enjoyed my chat with Oliver. His book is awesome. Now, we've come to the end of this episode and I have a beach and a volcano and some tropical foliage to get to over here. So I'm going to love you and leave you. Thank you for joining me this episode. It's always a privilege to be in your ears. If you have 30 seconds to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, I'd be really grateful because it helps us with the rankings and it helps other people discover us as well. In the meantime, do feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm over at ValerieKoo.com, where you'll get a glimpse of the double life that I lead. Uh, And of course, please do join our free listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Um, And we have a few Easter eggs and a few surprises in there for the members as well. Thanks so much for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.